0: Hello beautiful people. This is your host Olga Peters. Just wanted you to know that the following episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour has been edited to fit within the radio station's one hour time slot. To hear our full conversation with Margaret Atkinson about hunger in Vermont, COVID funding, and Juneteenth, please check out our Vermontitude Facebook page or our Vermontitude SoundCloud page. Thanks and now you won't peel your happy hour. of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and as always, we will be talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. I want to welcome to the show regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. And then we also have with us the lovely Margaret Atkinson, who is the Director of Development and Community Relations at Winston Proudy, Center for Child and Family Development, and also co-chair of the Wyndham Hunger Council, which uh, that's our topic today is hunger in Vermont, because it is one of those issues that I think COVID has shown a huge spotlight on, and yet has been a very long term um, problem in Vermont. And I just before we get started, I want to give some stats from an organization called hunger free Vermont for listeners. We have nearly 60,000 Vermonters who live with food insecurity, meaning um, they don't always know if they will have the money next week to, to fill the refrigerator. We have this, this statistic blows my mind. We have 159,270 residents who have incomes that qualify them for Three Squares Vermont, which is the food subsidy program. In, in Vermont, it's, it's federally funded food subsidy program. So that means there are people who are listening to this show right now who probably qualify for this program and may not even realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the monthly shortfall for a family of four with two adults, uh, monthly shortfall in their food budget, for two adults with two kids, um, both making minimum wage, the adults, not the children, um, is just over $2,000, which how $2,200 is a lot of money to be short in, in your budget, especially around something as basic as food. Um, so there are some very big, broad statistics right there. I'm curious, Margaret, since COVID... Um, you know, really got rolling earlier this this year. What have what has the hunger council been seeing around hunger in the state? Well,
1: the like almost every place in Vermont. You know, our local hunger council. Just to say who's on who sits on the council is representatives from um, the most of the food pantries in the region from Windham County up to Springfield. Um, uh, representatives from churches, uh, municipalities, uh, the food bank, food connects, uh, child and family serving organizations like the Springfield Parent Child Center and Winston County. you know, um, so there's like a cross sector of social service folks, you know, with a, with occasional, uh, uh, input from, you know, uh, other government people, etc. So it's it's and citizens who are interested in the issue of
0: hunger. Uh,
1: our plan for the for the year, and we generally in regular times we would meet every other month for an hour and a half uh, with uh, representatives of Hunger Free Vermont, who, which is the statewide organization that's the backbone for the hunger councils, and there's uh, ten of them in the in the state. Uh, You know, we would uh, usually focus on a topic that was of interest to all the groups. So folks would definitely learn what's going on um, around things like food access for veterans or uh, child serving programs, you know, whatever. And also we would do projects together to help make the local food system work more efficiently. So. All the representatives from the food pantries meet together regularly to figure out ways to combine resources and uh, work with the food bank to make sure that their communities are served in the best way they can. And we've done other projects over the course of the years to um, collect data and to spread the word. We, uh, the last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time, you know, making sure that families know about the summer food programs, things like that. So that's You know, the work that we do is sort of systemic and relationship building among all these organizations so that when something happens like COVID, we actually have a really great sort of network of people who know and trust each other who can then work together well. So a lot of what we did as the council was just make sure that there was a place to come to coordinate efforts. And so we had... Uh, coordination around uh, what was going on with the school meals and schools in general as that whole school, you know, thing evolved. Uh, how are the food pantries able to uh, work to get food pantries and congregate meal sites? What, what help did they need? How were they able to meet their, um, you know, did they need more volunteers? Did they need equipment? You know, how are they going to continue to supply food for, the, for their uh, communities? Uh, volunteer coordination and communication. So we tried to just kind of, and we met early on, we met weekly to just sort of make sure that everybody knew what was going on because the situation changed so drastically. And to also make sure that we were a place where um, we could communicate as one voice to our our various communities and constituencies about how to access help Um, and what was going on. So we kind of sort of held that coordination piece and I think it worked very well because uh, the Hunger Council is active and well attended and people really have good relationships with each other. Um, As time has gone on, we've met a little less often but we've had input onto um, projects that have been generated from the state. Like there's currently a, a restaurant stimulus program where restaurants- I want to talk about that um, in a little bit. To the charitable food system. So we, that was definitely a place for people to come and have conversations about how that was going to work and who might be available to uh, to help with that. Uh, and, you know, now that things are a little more, um, I guess, regularized, like you know, the the you know, we still sort of are, are holding a place for communication. So I know that one of the things right now um, that's going to be needed is uh, folks to help volunteer at summer meal sites, which are going to be very different this year. So uh, we can, we have a network that we can sort of, you know, make sure that uh, people know that there's that need and then see that it gets filled. So that's what we've been doing lately um we also are a real locus for advocacy to the state house about you know some bigger issues over time and you know we, we haven't forgotten that those issues are there um but and you know we provide some of the people power that the hunger free can motivate when you know we need to show up for an issue at the state house or nationally
0: and, and you know, i would the, i would add there's a that, lot of advocacy oh sorry uh, I would just add that one thing um, Hunger Free Vermont and the Hunger Councils are really good at is taking these very big, complex federal programs and tracking them and, and getting the information out to people about if there's going to be a funding change, what that could mean. And, and just to speak to your advocacy part, they're really good at taking these very complex systems and, and making them tangible for people.
2: And I think that's been particularly appreciated in this time as we've had many more people have their eyes on the charitable food system and um, one thing I've appreciated in an ongoing way about the Hunger Council is how you have a mix of folks who are like deeply dedicated volunteers and folks who are professionals coming into the same room and really collaborating equally on something. Um, You know so many of those Mm -hmm. food shelves are run much smaller and are run by volunteers. And then you have something like Food Works, which is you know a totally professionalized organization in a lot of ways. And as we've sort of gone on this journey through the pandemic, we've seen more people popping up who want to volunteer, who want to create new charitable food projects. Um, we've seen folks who are very active volunteers who are at health risk by their continued volunteering. And so through all of that shifting, which um, I think really, threatened to destabilize a system that was increasingly important and necessary. I've really appreciated that I could trust in you all to be holding so much of the stability there and really helping coordinate that because of those really strong relationships yeah. that you have.
1: You know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that I, um, as, you know, it's been actually a topic of discussion in the Hunger Council about how so much of this really vital safety net for people depends on a bunch of 68 year old church ladies, you know, and that, you know, they're awesome, but in a, in a, in a situation now where, um, where those folks are at the highest risk, uh, it's, it's really a concern. And I think that, you know, it, you know, on a systemic level, you sort of have to step back and say, you know, is this the best way to deliver uh this to our community. And yeah. I mean there's things about it that are really important uh in communities. But it's also in as with much of the social service sector and nonprofit sector, it's also a house of cards, you know, because one little thing can just bring it all down. And it's uh you know, this is something that we as Vermonters have built for ourselves and the decisions that we've made. And so we can change it, but it's gonna take some really deep thinking about, you know, what kind of structures. And so, and I would say also the success of the Hunger Council has really de- depended on time. And there was a time when food shelves were had to kind of an adversarial relationship with say the food bank, you know, and it took a lot of time and working together and airing their opinions and issues and finding ways to make that system better among themselves that has gotten us to the point that we're at today. And so I think the functionality of the system really has depend on, on all sorts of those sectors building good relation, good trusting relationships with each other. And um, and that's really been the thing I think over time of the council.
2: One of the pieces that's been really um difficult and um, I think as an opportunity for a lot of change in this time has been all of the folks who are encountering the terrible food system or um, government bureaucracy for perhaps the first time in their lives, perhaps the first time in a long time. Whether that Mm -hmm. is folks who are sending their kids down to pick up the free lunch from the school bus or receiving the food stamp cards in the mail, or um, applying for unemployment benefits and winding their way through the healthscape that is the unemployment bureaucracy, or um, just trying, like being hungry and trying to find food. And so as we have increased eyes on this system and increased need in the system, I also, it's, I think helped illuminate how, um, how difficult it can be to navigate for someone who doesn't know it. And so I, I see so much opportunity there And I'm curious what opportunities you have seen in that Mm -hmm. moment as well. Well,
1: so I think, uh, um, you know, there's the the long-term and the short-term. And one of the things that, well, is true about all sort of benefit programs is that uh, we're not as bad as some other states, but there's a, a, you know, an application process that is sometimes a disincentive for people. Um, I think we have tried as the Hunger Council and, you know, certainly the agencies that uh, work with people have tried really hard to get folks to do things like apply for three squares. You know, folks don't, the eligibility, um, folks don't, you know, especially folks who are at the edge of eligibility, they don't know, it's like doing the application answers the question, are you eligible? And right now in this time, when um, there's no work requirements for three squares, uh, every uh, person gets the top level of benefit that they qualify for. You know, a lot of the rules, which are, I shall say federal rules mostly, you know, have been um, halted during this COVID time. And, you know, the thing that's uh, efficient about three squares is that if once you qualify you get the EBT card, and you can go to the grocery store and buy food. It doesn't, you know, there's it doesn't require the infrastructure of giant food giveaways, et cetera, et cetera. It's people just going to the grocery store, and it, it brings money also into the economy. So, um, um, for me, that you know getting more people to just use that system that runs quite well in the state is you know it's a real opportunity. And so, folks who are newly unemployed. Um, or had reductions in hours and have children at home you know you should definitely you know see if you qualify for three squares because it's um, it's a helpful program and um, and it's also probably the most efficient way to get help.
2: I think both um, food stamps and and I Sorry, I just call it food stamps and I know I should call it three squares or EBT, but I, um, I find that most people have no idea what reach up or three squares or EBT means and calling it welfare and food stamps is sometimes more transparent, um, but I realize that it's also stigmatized so I'll try to mm-hmm. switch back and forth. Um, I think both three squares and, and um, WIC are incredible opportunities because what Olga you were saying before about how um, how people's budgets are squeezed right now. And even though it seems like food is not negotiable, food is the most negotiable budget item. You know, rent is fixed, mortgages are fixed, um, electric bills are mostly fixed. Mm -hmm. And so it's the only place you can squeeze. And so it's what gets squeezed when something needs to squeeze. And with food stamps and WIC, it means that there's one spot at least that's not getting squeezed because that can only be spent on food. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Margaret, I want to revisit, you know, Emily had talked about opportunities uh, now that so much attention is on some of our charitable systems. And you brought up a very good point before air talking about, yes, this is an opportunity and we have to be careful about how we move forward and that we don't create what you call a two-tier system. Um, could you elaborate on that for listeners? Because I think that I think that is something. The reason it caught my attention is one: yes, it's something we may not want to have happen. But two, it reminds me that so often in our charitable food systems and our charitable systems in general, um, we we tell stories about the people who need those systems, but also. What leads people to needing those systems are not always the same thing. So someone might be hungry or five people might be hungry, but why they're hungry is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And what brought them to being hungry is not the same thing. And so it reminds Mm -hmm. me of how inflexible our systems can be when perhaps they need to be, because there's so many reasons people come to them. Um, So that's kind of a long intro, but please. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, one of the one of the things that we really wanted to, the Hunger Council was going to do in the before times was to start collecting data and tell more stories about, you know, who hungry people are in our community because it's very easy to sort of float along and not think that maybe the elder who lives next door to you in a lovely house just like yours and your lovely middle-class neighbor might actually be food insecure because they're living on social security and paying their taxes and... Yeah. And they're having tea and toast for dinner every night and maybe might yeah, have a more substantial meal when they you know, when their son and daughter come to visit on Sunday. I mean, it's that, so that people don't necessarily have the idea of who hungry people are. Well, I think there's a stereotypical idea. And then there's the in a place like uh, Wyndham County, you know, hungry people are really your neighbors, you know, and you're, they're people that you know. Um, except that it's, you know, it's a closely held secret perhaps. Now with COVID, you know, a lot of people became unemployed and um, became financially insecure really rapidly through no fault of their own. And the safety net system really mobilized with the portrait of the people they were helping are these folks who have never had to access the system before. But we also have, you know, in... uh, Gra- Groundworks and Foodworks and uh, Bridget's Kitchen and Loaves and Fishes are feeding, you know, 150 people who are living in hotels, three meals a day, um, day after day. Now, those were folks who were um, in some sort of distress, many of them, for months and even years before now. But they still deserve to get the same quality of food, the same quality of help um, that somebody who was a working middle class person two months ago um, and now needs help gets. Both both families deserve this uh, the same high quality of response. And so, um, you know, we had started the conversation off air talking about how you know folks being needing help for the first time may help. De- and having the experience the lived experience of being food insecure will destigmatize food insecurity which might happen but it also drives this other thing of a conversation about the deserving poor and the undeserving mm-hmm. poor and, and uh, when some new projects from the state were being proposed here recently you know it it surfaced this conversation about um, you know about the danger of developing a two-tiered system that is uh comfortable and sympathetic and dignified for a certain kind of uh hungry person and is something else for others and i you know we don't want that to happen because we want everybody to have the same high quality sympathetic experience and access to what they need to thrive no matter where they are in their journey uh, now and so um,
2: and I, think I think, we, yeah I think we want those things um, both because that is what a civilized society provides for its neighbors and the dignity improves everyone's lives and because we know that overall like our health, as a society and each community will be better and less expensive if everyone yeah. has those services. And I, I. the phenomenon of fault and fault um, around poverty is so difficult to unpack. Um, yeah. Because it's really like how how far into the complexity of a system can we get our heads around, right? Like we know there's no fault when someone had a job one day and then the next day the government said you can't have a job. But if we like extend out, you know, six months or identify the trauma in someone's life that caused them to have a harder time having a job and how far out into the sort of system of someone's life do we as, you know, Granters of you know charitable gifts need to go before we find no fault in someone's life that they deserve food, which is a horrific exercise to engage in, and I don't think one we should try to do, right? <laughs> well, I mean I
1: think, I think it's like almost something that we don't in some ways we don't need to do, but I think you know the the conversations people are now having around um, you know policing. Mm-hmm apply to every aspect of charity and the social safety and you have the state making decisions about who deserves something and who doesn't deserve something Mm -hmm. and building systems and i'll say this just you know in the thing that i know better um you know in early childhood the state has a subsidy for families to pay for child care which is another thing that has been revealed in this crisis to be an incredibly important uh, part of you know it's an incredibly important thing that helps keep the economy running the, the application for child care subsidy is eight pages long and I uh, you know I have an advanced degree and it, it's a very, it's a difficult form that requires you know people to walk families page by page through it to make sure every box is checked so, you know, we have built a structure that hasn't made it easy for people act to access the help that they need. And I just think that, you know, because those are decisions that we have made as people, we can make new decisions to help people to access what they need in, in a much more uh, humane and streamlined way. And so, uh, you know, when you talk about like hunger is a problem that. Could be solved Mm -hmm. if we decide to solve it. I I firmly believe that, and uh, you know, it. I mean, it's going to be hard and it's going to be expensive, but all of these problems could be solved. There's there's plenty of resources. It's the way they're deployed, and you know, when you look at what's going on in the state house, I mean, there's been enormous gains for these systems in the short terms because of this crisis. I think the proof of our, you know, of our humanity and of, and of our progressivism as a state is what happens long term? How do you uh, continue
2: to maintain these systems as time goes on? I really appreciate that final point. Um, and I think one of the, one of the small pieces of legislative process that is so clear to me is we put our progressive in ism in um, one time money. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And the effort to put something into the ongoing budget is a very different conversation and is really where we almost always fall short. This might be, I don't know if this is a good time for us to take a break and then come back and talk about the legislation that has just passed this week regarding food security.
0: Just about, we're we're just at a point to take a break. Thank you, Emily. but before we do, I just want to highlight something this conversation's raising for me and it reminds me of my time living in the UK. And um, I, I had to pay my council tax, which is just a tax you have to pay when you live in, when you live in London. And um, in the process of, of calling the council, which is like a, a kind of like a select board, um, I, I was talking to the person and he's like, well, you know, your services, what I don't see you down here for any services. And, you know, oh, I'm not a citizen, so I don't qualify. But the assumption on his part was that as someone living in London, um, and as someone living in the UK, I immediately qualified for services. And so the assumption was that you opt, you're automatically opted in. Rather than you have right. to opt yourself in, mm-hmm. and I wonder what it would mean for services in Vermont if we adopted that assumption that mm-hmm. everyone is everyone needs services unless they don't, rather than you don't need services unless you can go through this crazy eight-page application. Um, it's a simple. It's 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 a mind shift more than a, maybe a structural shift, but it makes me wonder what our services would look like if that was the assumption we were working with.
2: I love that idea. And I think the way that we've sent EBT cards to every single family in the school district who happen to be in a school district with a high poverty rate is exactly that. It's saying mm-hmm. everyone gets this because you're in a community and it's up to you what you do with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the, the <laughs> shift in people's minds around that is incredible incredible to watch. And when I've one of the things that was scariest for me So one of the things that do... Go for it Margaret. I think we do better in person because we like to yeah. layer on each other's uh, conversations.
1: So I just yeah, so I mean the ongoing test of that is something like universal school meals. Mm-hmm. So that is basically that every child who is going to school in Vermont gets breakfast and lunch for free, does right and so, and you know they can. There's plenty of ways that families can opt out about, of that, but but that it's you know there's certain things that are seen as needed, you know, and children being fed, it's fed and you know able to learn because they're not hungry is you know is like a it's it's as needed as a textbook and a desk and a chalkboard. So that's like that's a place where you could use that model of everybody gets this um, because it's better for everybody. It it, it helps it helps all children um, and helps those commu- school communities to just run and do their job better. And you know that to me is like a, an incremental step in thinking about um, how the state. Provides um, support to its citizens, and that's a real doable thing. Mm-hmm. In a couple of years, mm. if, if we decide that that's you know where we want to put resources.
0: Well, so and I wonder to, too. a
1: Practical if have... thing to illustrate that, you know.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Margaret. Well, I wonder too. Is you know, so often when we're talking about services, there's this them and us that can come up like oh well i work hard but i don't get services and look at this person what do they do to deserve again deserve but it's Mm -hmm. this scarcity mentality them and us and i wonder too if everyone was just in the system Mm -hmm. if it would if it would ease some of those conversations as well
2: i think also as we, um, more of us are willing to talk about our experiences when we have been using the system, I think that also goes a long way. Um, so as more and more people are opted in, then more and more people can feel comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we have a um, virtuous cycle as they call in systems theory, um, where sort of the, what works builds on what works.
0: Thank you. So. Uh, Margaret, Emily, and I will be back in a moment. We're going to take a break to hear from our underwriters. And we'll be, back happy hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro. FM, your community radio station. As always, the opinions and views expressed on this show are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station. I want to welcome back to the show (laughs) Margaret Atkinson and Emily Kornheiser. And for those just joining us, we are talking about hunger in Vermont, as well as what has COVID meant for our food systems. And uh, Emily, you wanna talk about some legislation that just passed the house or that, that has some funding for, for hunger and our food system. Yes,
2: so we've passed, uh, I think it'll be just three or four bills by the time we're done that sort of takes all of the um, federal money, um, calling them CRF. We're actually calling them CRF funds, but it's COVID relief funds, so it's a little duplicative. And I, anyway, so it's taking that billion something dollars, which on first release seemed like the most magical, exciting thing that was gonna transform the face of Vermont into the land of justice and opportunity we have always thought it could be. And then through increasing communications from the feds um, and from the federal reserve found out that no, no, that's not what was gonna happen because (laughs) there are very um, strict guidelines on how that money can be spent. And that there has to be a very tight nexus um, to COVID. And so while many of us were thinking more systemically about COVID risk is very, you know, connected to someone's um, health conditions and health conditions are really all about sort of the social indicators of health. And so if we could just get our communities more economically viable, and um, then everything will be beautiful and we'll be healthy and strong forever, that is in fact not how the federal government sees things. And so we need to be a lot more specific. And so what we have wound up with through this is three or four bills that are essentially these very vibrant laundry lists of ways we want to tackle certain issues in our community um, with appropriations going to each of these issues with this very circular language about how each of these issues connects to COVID. And all of the money has to be spent before December 30th. And I don't know why it's December 30th and not December 31st, but that's what everyone always says. And so I'm repeating that language. And so it means that like not, that's like six months. And so not a lot of big work can happen and some really, really important work can happen that can sort of prove concepts that we've been wanting to prove for a long time. So on the show in previous weeks, we've talked about the fact that everyone that didn't have a home is now housed temporarily. Well, that was true a month ago when we said it then. It's not as true right now. And how miraculous that was, or seemingly miraculous. But in fact, it just took some money and some effort and then everyone has some privacy and a place to sleep at night. And so we could keep on doing that with this money. And food is a similar one. And so what we've, was requested from Hunger Free Vermont and a coalition of other advocates was really um, ways of both transitioning the food system to be Um, resilient to COVID. So those are sort of very practical things around hygiene and um, a shift in how volunteers are used, given how aging our volunteer base is, and a bunch of other things like that. And then also some ideas for real resiliency in the system going forward um, and responding to the increased need. And so what we wound up with is, I think, somewhere halfway in the middle there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, in H965, which is the bill that um, is focused on healthcare spending and human services spending, we've seen $4.6 million going to the food bank, um, $12, million, $12 million going to summer meals programs, and $2 million going to older food security for older Vermonters. And that's um, usually through Meals on Wheels, Senior Solutions, Senior Meals programs. Mm -hmm. And So I'm curious from you, Margaret, where, once that money goes there, what it will be used to do? Um, And what's missing?
1: Yeah, so the summer meals program is, I think, the thing that's sort of in the most flux and has gone through the biggest, is going through the biggest transition. Um, That's a program that is administered by the Department of Education, and it's a USDA program. And in the past, what it's done is set up uh, congregate meal sites in communities and also allowed um, organizations like summer camps and schools to be closed sites and um, be able to serve uh, USDA subsidized healthy meals to children under 18. And so, Usually, the uh, the that system works with a, a sort of an area sponsor. So, like in Brattleboro, the school district has, for the last several years, have been has been area sponsor for setting up about 13 meal sites around the the district where folks can show up every day, uh, children can show up every day and get a free lunch and often they're associated with places where there's other kinds of programming so at Living Memorial Park or at the library. Uh, libraries over the past couple of years have been real centers of, uh, of uh, summer meals because um, it's definitely a place where kids are and uh, so this year because you can't safely have congregate meals uh, it, it looks to me like the the strategy is to continue what the school districts were doing during school time, which is continuing to deliver meals uh, using things like the bus routes and and sort of centralized places in communities and deliver meals um, in in bulk really to folks who can pick them up and then they can be taken home or you know and can and so.
2: Um, can I ask a a quick clarifying question on that so my understanding is that during the school year that was paid for with sort of existing budgeted funds because school school bus routes had already been sort of paid for a contract with the bus system had already been made the meals the school meals had already been paid for and those contracts were in place but none of the contracts were in place for the summer so it was a it's it's a big leap right it's like a
1: So in some ways, there's some structure that's already there. The things that are um, difficult is that you don't have the personnel. So there is, so transport, so this um, $12 million is going to pay for transportation of meals. Um, It's going to pay for uh, things like, you know, the, all the, like the packaging, um, food, and it's going to pay for food also, but, but, you know, the, a lot of the infrastructure that is going to be needed to do, to have this kind of program because you want to make sure that you can still feed as many children as possible and uh, the it's also pays I think you know uh if there's being a summer meal sponsor requires some training so there's also some expense there as well and as so I know that in our region Um, out in the Deerfield Valley, there's a school district that isn't doing summer meals, but the meals are going to be picked up by the Stratton Foundation. And so those folks, great for them, but they're going to need some training and some infrastructure to to actually pull that off. So that's what, that money's been paying for food and and the, the real expenses of having a delivery type system. And I think even with that extra help, that it's not gonna be as saturated into the community as um, the school time program was because of that loss of the busing. Um, My hope is with, you know, um, with good communication over the next couple of weeks, families are, and that's really, you know, the work of the local communities and local agencies, just really making sure that families know where they can access food um, because it's gonna be available to them. Locally, I know um, the school districts are trying to get word out to all families to basically sign up so that they have a good count and a good idea
2: of how much food they need to make and who's going to be at what sites and stuff like that. So it's it's, Towards that conversation of opting in versus opting out. I think one of what I heard from folks about the this um, spring's school delivery was that a lot of families felt like they deserved this in a way that they might not have ever accessed summer meals because their kids were sort of, you know, not going to school anymore and their kids were used to getting school lunch at school. And um, the pressure that I heard from so many folks, not just the financial pressure, but like the emotional and labor pressure of having one meal that doesn't have to be cooked in the midst of all the stress of families being stuck at home together or kids being home alone while parents are off at essential jobs or whatever it was, just like the incredible stress relief of having this meal be provided was really huge for families. And so I'm hopeful that now that folks have experienced that opt out um, experience with the school meal delivery that more families will see this summer food option as something that fits into their lives because they've sort of practiced that receiving already.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, the thing is too, is that the reality is many of those children in normal times would have been at camp or at childcare yeah. like in some other, right. And, and be getting fed that way. So it's still, you know, it's still, uh, something that, you know, all, uh, you know, all children should, you know, all children do deserve it. It's, it's an entitlement in this, this world. Now those children are entitled to eat. At least those meals for free, and and you know so, you know if it, if people can at all you know find a way to access this that that they should, the um, the stuff for elders, you know the, there's a, the meals on wheels and those kind of programs to support um, elders have you know they've been soldiering on in this you know changing their practices some but um, folks have been getting meals delivered to their homes, Um, a lot of the sort of uh, social contact that comes from sort of those um, senior center congregate meals, like those things have gone away. And so people are losing that benefit. But Meals on Wheels has been, and um, Senior Solutions, they have been providing food as much as possible um, and as, you know, in a safe manner. And so the extra money um, in the bill, again, supports some of the extra expense uh, around delivery and packaging um, to make sure that, that our elders are also getting uh, fed. I mean, this is, a, um, in some ways, a lot of times the talk around hunger sort of turns to children and families, but um, the highest use of food shelves is among people over 65, I believe. In, in our region. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of folks who have worked all their life and still uh, need this help. And it's, and it's, you know, it's necessarily harder for them because they're far more at risk um, than young people in the current environment. So um, it's good that that money came. And the food bank, $4.6 million means that they can acquire Uh, more good healthy food, there's been a lot of transformation over, I mean, a lot of the work of food shelves um, in the past couple years since I've been involved in the Hunger Council has been that ongoing uh, discussion about uh, making sure that the food that's provided through the charitable food system is nutritious and healthy Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, locally sourced when it can be. There's, you know, food connects and, you know, these amazing organizations that have really tried to work with, uh, with Vermont farmers to make sure that um, their products are in the charitable food system because, and, and there are now um, with some of the other sort of short-term programs, uh, a lot of focus on making sure that those farmers and, and food producers who have lost their restaurant business uh, during this time have another place to sell their product and there's people, I mean, early on, I'm sure you remember how there was sort of the horror of like hearing about dairy farmers dumping their milk tanks when there was, you know, people who needed food. And so um, the system may not be perfect, but at least people started to figure out ways where food wasn't going to waste, um, whether that's supporting agriculture in the way it needs to be supported is another whole question. Yes, At least we're not seeing food being plowed under and dumped. Um, In Vermont, at least. Vermont, yeah. Um, yeah, that's like another gigantic system. No, we don't
2: need A yeah.
1: couple hours of discussion. But yeah, so. Um, you know, the food bank having, you know, just more money to buy things is, and again, packaging, delivery, you know, all that stuff um, is important. And they're, you know, a nonprofit organization that, uh, you know, gets money from various income streams and, you know, they
2: need the support. So. And then today we are voting on. Okay, did you want to ask any questions about that before I go to the next
0: bill? I'm sorry. Oh, I just wanted, uh, thank you, Emily. I just wanted to put out there for listeners talking about food and, and volunteering. Um, the Vermont Food Bank has held for about 10 years a gleaning program uh, where folks go out into mm-hmm. the fields and they, they pick uh, vegetables that are still good but perhaps the farmer can't sell them to a restaurant or whatever, like they normally would. Um, And so you can harvest that food on behalf of the food bank and um, it goes into the food system. So they're looking for volunteers right now. Uh, If you go to the Vermont food banks website, you can find out how to volunteer for that program. And for folks who have been cooped up, inside for COVID, uh, it's a great excuse to, to get back out into your community. So I just wanted to, to do a shameless yeah. plug there for the gleaning program. Thanks, so. Olga. Shameless plug over.
2: <laughs> um, the next bill that hasn't passed yet, but it's on the House floor today, and um, I'm sure it will pass because things don't actually come to the House floor that aren't gonna pass. That's one of the political secrets of the universe that now everyone knows um is h966 and that bill has a bunch of pieces in it but one piece is um came out of the commerce committee which i unfortunately no longer sit on because it seems like they've had a lot of fun the last few weeks debating these issues um and there's a section in that around i think they started the conversation coming from the commerce perspective of how do we support restaurants right now And what do sort of restaurants bring to our communities that we could find a way for the state to support? And down here in Brattleboro, there's been, and I think actually also in Burlington based around the Skinny Pancake, um, which is a whole chain of restaurants. um, There have been conversations about how restaurants can be sort of transformed to produce meals for folks that wouldn't necessarily come into the restaurant, but might access that food in another way, whether that's in what was once a congregate setting or um, to be handed out in other ways. And so there's $15 $15 million.
0: Is that right? I haven't looked at the bill. Huh, I wrote 50, I I wrote,
2: 15,000 seems like not enough, and 15 million seems like an extraordinary quantity of money compared to the southern money. I'm gonna look for a second. What? I'm gonna check. Maybe it's 1.5. Maybe it's 1.5. I'm gonna check my notes while perhaps Margaret can tell us about how this was sort of all, how this shook out. And um, it seems like it's a collaboration between Sevka and farm to table. And I'm really curious about like sort of what are the, what are the pros and cons of layering on another system onto our existing, onto our existing system?
1: Well, I, I think the idea from the commerce side was to, you know, basically find a way to use the um, this sort of unused uh, capacity. Yeah. Uh, terms while so while while restaurants are closed. Um, you know, finding a way to support restaurants, workers getting back to doing some work and being paid um, to do that. And then, you know, uh, and then providing a thing that's actually really needed in the charitable food system, uh, cooked meals. You know, there are folks who need to eat every day and they don't really have the capacity to cook. So uh, prepackaged meals that they can, you know, heat up or that are ready to eat uh, are, are really an important part of, uh, of the system. So that's, you know, fine. And the model up in Burlington is, uh, you can find it's called Shift Meals and it was the Skinny Pancake and I believe some other agencies. And basically it's a way where, you know, folks who need meals can pre-order and sign up for meals and they um, come and pick them up for free. And it's a, you know, it's a way to, you um, add more capacity to the charitable food system. So uh, some folks from commerce spoke with uh, Stephanie Bonin of the downtown organization, downtown Brattleboro organization, uh, who of course knows everybody in town and has a deep roots in the restaurant community. Um, And there was just a conversation with hunger-free folks on how would you make something like this happen down here? And I think, um, you know, the thing about developing sort of a new part or adding capacity to an existing system is that, especially during this crisis time, the existing system is maxed out. You know, the food right. shelf people are like max. You know, social service folks are sort of maxed out and also limited in that a lot of the work we've done has to be done remotely. So there's so finding ways to actually build something new together that's going to work for people. Um, and, and be just and equitable and solve the problem is, you know, it's it's hard. And so from what I know where it stands now is that uh, SEVCA um, has become the lead nonprofit agency um, to sort of hold the work. And thank goodness they had some capacity to pick that up because, you know, one of the things, everybody sort of sat there and said, this seems like a good idea. And then you all uh, look at each other and going, who has the capacity to take this on because it's a lot? Um, the downtown Brattleboro organization, Stephanie Bowen's people—I mean, they're really the folks who are doing the interface with the restaurants and are sort of staffing the the you know the actual implementation. And then um, the other big capacity that was needed and was found was uh, just you know large refrigeration capacity and inspected commercial kitchens. And so Mama Says, which is uh, um, a uh, business in West Brattleboro that makes, you know, makes healthy meals and ships them around the world, was able to also help with sort of their capacity. So they are piecing together, um, building a program that's going to be making a lot of meals and dispersing them in the community via the delivery and also via the food bank. Um, and so, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I don't, um, one of the things early on was that commerce really wanted to roll this program out like within weeks. And I think one of the discussions of the of the community organizations are like, it's gonna take more than a couple of weeks to really make sure that we do this right. So, um, and I think again, you know, the good relationships between organizations and all, you know, then just people sort of standing up and saying to the state, yeah, this is a good idea and we want to do it, but you cannot pressure us into making this happen on your timeline because it's crazy, you know. Um, I, you know, I, a lot of power in all those organizations to negotiate yeah. with the state. Thing that, as somebody who spent many years in the nonprofit sector um, dealing with, the state as a funding source and as a partner um, to me that's like one of the key things in solving all these or working together to solve these problems is that we have to work together and um, you know the state has an interest in making sure that people have their needs met and are healthy and um, can contribute to society and their partner on the ground and making that happen in community our community agencies and we are, we're partners, we're not cl- you know, clients, supplicants. Like, you know, yeah. And there, have to be times, there has to be times when there has to be a real conversation about whether what is in, the, whether the state's intent is actually a thing that's right for a community. And so agencies should be able to have those conversations with state funders uh, and be held harmless. In that, because what we're all we all have an interest in having things work out, and so you know, from someone who observed from inside and out, you know, this whole process. I mean, I think the fact that the timeline was extended and it and the state sort of altered some of its thinking about their original proposal is a good thing because we all have an interest in having the program work,
2: and you know, that's yeah, no, and as community partners, we need to be able to say this is not actually enough money to do this well and so we shouldn't bother or this is not enough time to do this well. Um, And that's such a terrifying thing to say when you know that, you know, that might mean that no money comes at all and you know, or you won't be able to do the work you need to do the power The power relationships are very complex and everyone comes to those conversations with a very different understanding of them. I figured out what my numbers were, that 15,000 was the number of meals that are um, expected to be provided. Um, And it's $5 million is the dollar figure. That's about right.
0: right. Thank you, Emily, thank you. Yeah, and so it is, it's an
2: exciting opportunity. I hope to really do some cross-class conversations. You know, we know that a lot of the folks who work in restaurants are often, especially now on the financial edge. Um, And so how we can sort of raise that conversation up a little bit, um, knowing that, you know, one of the reasons I left restaurant work was because there was something difficult for my soul in the fact that I was creating so much beauty and pleasure. And that was only available to some members of my community. Um, and so I think the more we can integrate our food system with that sort of dignity that everyone deserves um, deserves good food and that everyone in our community can have a part in providing that. I think there are real opportunities there. Yes. You know, the thing
1: about this program too, I sort of thought, you know, if there was at least one time a week where those meals were available to anybody in the community with a pay as you can kind of thing, you'd find a way to maybe get some sustainability income into something, you know, cause mm-hmm. folks would you know show up and pay for these meals if they can, yeah, knowing that what they're paying could be um, turned back into the program. I mean, I think that it's something that could find a way to sustainability with, uh, with some thought to it, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I mean, ultimately, we hope that the we get to have enough of an economy again, and so that there's restaurants <laughs> that well, people and can go to. Yeah, maybe my, a while.
2: One of my struggles um, with the tourism industry in general, as a person who's sort of invested in an economy that works for everyone is that a mm-hmm. lot of the jobs in the tourism industry are so seasonal in the level of income that comes in um, because our restaurants experience a considerable seasonality um, in when people yes. are coming in. And so if this, which is very different from in a lot of cities you, know, where, you have a consist- where your mm-hmm. customer base actually lives in the community. Um, and so if something like this was able to really help restaurants sustain themselves in, do, during the shoulder seasons or stick season or whatever you like to call it. Um, I think that would also, and then through whatever the coming dark days of the tourism industry might be. Um, I I, I think that's probably gonna last past the fall. Um, and so this seems like a really good opportunity to keep those jobs going. Yeah,
1: so, so I do, again, you know, and again, long- Long term, come back to, yeah. you know, boy, to see the charitable food system go out of business and because people have living wages and people have access to healthcare that and it won't bankrupt them. And, you know, the, you know, there's, you know, there's so many things that we can also do with our other kinds of policies to raise people up so that the charitable food system shrinks at least to the point where um, it's serving many fewer I mean the numbers of, of folks who need help in our community are it, it it's sort of it's staggering and you know I keep coming back to you know, you know, in my, in, the, in, the, in my town here, you know, in Brattleboro, it's like, what, 63% of the children qualify for free lunch, you know, that's a huge number, yeah. and mm-hmm. it has a, it's a number that really spiked during the last financial crisis, but it's never really gotten very much back. And right. and, you know, and that was 10 years ago, and, you know, so I really have to ask the question, is like, what How do you use the mechanisms of the state to actually make a dent in things like child poverty? And I know that that really means people need to think differently about the revenue side of the budget as well as the spending side. And
2: Indeed.
1: I don't think we're going to... Have any movement in the nation and in the state until there's a much more rational uh, uh, discussion about where money is, who has it, how it's being used in the world, and what you know uh, what being a great country really means. You
2: know, so uh, oh, Margaret, will you come join me on Ways and Means? We'll have so much fun together. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> I absolutely agree, and it's. Um, I've tried to find a few glimmers of hope in sort of systemic change. That as one of the things we've talked about on this show over the last many months, is that COVID helped more people see the mm-hmm. deep fractures in our system. And at the beginning, I thought there was a real opportunity as everything sort of broke apart that we might be able to put it back together differently.
0: Yeah,
2: and. I'm still hoping that there are some places that we can really that have allowed us to shift the conversation in our state around what the economy is for.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, I, um, you know, in my work as a fundraiser, you know, I, you know, talk to people about, you know, putting their money behind their values. Mm-hmm. And, um, And I think, you know, I've never met anyone who's like pro-hungry children, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just not, you know, but um, folks don't necessarily know what, what they can personally do to make this system better. And some of it is just like how you're voting and how you, um, you know, pay attention to some of the big things that seem really hard, but um, Mm -hmm. enough people can, um, can make a change. And I think too, the, besides COVID, the recent uh, discussions around Black Lives Matter, I mean, I think you're really, suddenly I think people are sort of seeing, oh, you really can make a lot of change if a lot of people stand up in a lot of places and say, we really need to make a ch- change here. And so we we can do that around poverty. And we have to, We like to get equity to get racial equity, we need to have economic equity too. And it's like, all those things are tied up together. And um, and in a state like Vermont, there's so many things that are doable. Yes. If, you know, if we-
2: If we have the will. I, I mean, I feel here,
1: we're so small here, we can, we can do better,
2: yeah. so. It's one of the things that's been really inspiring to me about the renewed calls for racial equity and racial justice is that when people stand up and you know get out in the streets and really put their put their voices on the line for these issues, it provides cover and coverage and courage for legislators to do that work. So all of the, you know, both with, you know, um, economic justice and racial justice, so many bills to really make systemic change on these things have been on the wall for years. Mm -hmm. It's not that no one's had the idea in the legislature that no one wants those things in the legislature. It's that they don't become priorities in this like group think until enough citizens, you know, stand up and shake their fists about it. And so it's, It's such a synergy to the point that I don't think people necessarily realize that it really does. It makes a huge difference, not because it helps us like think that we need to do something for the first time, but it helps us. It helps the collective focus on a single singular issue to the exclusion of the others for just a week or two. Well,
1: so that's where political will comes from, you
2: know,
1: political, right? It's like, they say, oh, this is a great idea, but there's no political will. And you know what, what shifts political will is people seeing their constituents demanding things. Yeah. And so and they and it, it can be done in a state like Vermont. It's so easy to send an email or send a text or make a phone call to your legislator. And, you know, you and I both know you hear from five or six people on one thing, and that's like a groundswell of, that's a, you know, that's a groundswell of action in Vermont. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's easy and it's not. And, I you know, one of the things I think that COVID has also done, because people were sent home and some of them have the f- freedom to feel a little bit more detached from the productivity demands of work that you know like they're going to go to the protest because Mm -hmm. you know what you know Uh, I think that like a lot of things have sort of shifted and uh and people are starting to think about what is really important for you know for my family and for my my community and uh and everybody's been jolted out of their regular pattern or many people and and that that's when change happens and so yeah I mean it's for for lot that things are hard it's it's also kind of hopeful i hope I hope you know and I hope for you emily because you're there you know on the zooms <laughs> I, you know, I, I am very in the and place I, where
2: I think one of the um one of the things about sort of the five emails being a groundswell is under normal circumstances i get five emails about one issue and five emails about another issue and five emails about another issue and for me that means that i need to be stay focused on the big picture which is that people can't politically most people can't politically participate until we have economic justice in this state because like you said most people in normal life in normal land are going to work and getting their kids and getting dinner on the table and just like spinning and spinning and spinning. And so it takes either economic justice or a full-scale global pandemic to get people to focus on politics for a second. And so I, I keep my eye on sort of the big picture prizes because I feel like it will then make space for those smaller shifts that need to happen. But I am hopeful and I'm hopeful particularly um, about racial justice legislation in this state right now. And remember the incredibly long arc of history on this. And so, you know, today's Juneteenth, mm-hmm. um, which celebrates, it's just an incredible story to me um, mm-hmm. in the lessons that are available in it, right? So it celebrates, the day that t- slaves in Texas found out that they were free, years after they were technically legally free. Two years. And so for me, it's such a powerful reminder of the long arc of sl- the long arc of history and how long it takes to move justice forward. And I find that heartening um, rather than discouraging. And also that. Justice isn't available just because we pass a law. Mm-hmm. It's only available when that law is fully implemented for everyone cr- across our nation or across our state. And that that takes more than just the signing of a pen. It takes a full government administration that's really um, accountable to the people in a significant way and to all people in a significant way. And so th- there are so many lessons for me in what that means we need to do around racial justice or economic justice right now in our communities.
0: Thank you, Emily. Um, we are way over time, so we, <laughs> we need to wrap up. But I do Always. want to remind folks for because today's is, is Juneteenth um, for folks who are still quarantining. There are a number of online events happening today um, around Juneteenth. You can check out your event page on uh, Facebook. Uh, They have a number of online events happening, Um, a number of streaming channels like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon have set up pages uh, where they uh, list a number of really great documentaries and films that highlight the work of uh, black writers and producers and artists um, and directors. So check those out if you are still staying home. And if you do want to venture out, I just want to remind folks in Wyndham County that one of the stops on the Vermont African-American Heritage Trail is in Grafton. And so if you want to get out and uh, be outside in the fresh air, you can head to Grafton and um, brush up on the African-American experience in Vermont. So, Margaret... Emily, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And I think we need to toast to the long arc of justice and history and to all the people who are working to move that arc forward. Thank you for joining us today on the Montpelier yeah. Happy Hour. The Montpelier Happy Hour is every Friday on WVEW LP Brattleboro 100 at 7.7 at 2 p.m., you can find us on the SoundCloud page, the Vermontitude SoundCloud page. And as always, Emily, where can people find you?
2: Emilycornheiser.org, ecornheiser at gmail.com, ecornheiser at ledge.state.bt.us, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., I hold a Zoom town hall conversation with the two other brattleboro legislators and tomorrow we are going to be talking about food security if anyone would like to continue this conversation 9 a.m saturdays via zoom you can find the invite on facebook or front porch forum or by shooting me an email thanks
0: emily margaret thank you everyone have a great weekend